0: Everybody. It's the king of all wrestling media Gene Jackson here for episode number two of Old School Dives and we will be joined in just a few moments by my co-host Shane Knowles. He's having a little bit of technical difficulties here, but he's trying to get in here so we can get started on the night's episode talking about the one and only Tommy Wildfire Rich. So it should be a fun show. Uh, I appreciate all the great feedback we got on the Jesse the Body Venture episode. Uh, we had a lot of fun doing that and uh, glad people enjoyed it. I'm glad people are liking, you know, the show so far and uh, it will probably continue to evolve and get better as we go along. But uh, just to, you know, kind of lay this out here while we got a minute, while we're waiting for uh, Shane Knowles to get in. Um, we're not always going to follow like a hard timeline on these episodes. You know, we're going to try to cover as much of these guys careers we can, you know, especially the highlights. Uh, but the show mostly is, you know, us giving insight on the aspects of these guys careers that, you know, we're both familiar with or that, you know, we were a fan of. And so, you know, we're not going to be able to cover everything, especially on a guy like Tommy Rich. I mean, you look at how far his career has spanned. I mean, he started in 1974 and he's still having matches to this day. Uh, But we will try to follow a timeline for the most part, but we will jump around here and there, as you saw with the Jesse Venture episode, as we, you know, sometimes one subject that comes up makes us move forward. And uh, sometimes we have to jump back to kind of cover something we may have missed or got ahead of ourselves. So hopefully people don't uh, hold our feet to the fire too hard as far as uh, being, uh, you know, strict to the timeline as we go through and talk about these guys. We're just going to try to. Like I say, hit you know the high points of their careers, and especially the things that we both have knowledge of, we both remember, we watched, or you know, stood out to us. And those are the things that we'll we'll try to cover you know more in depth. Uh, but like I say, hopefully Shane will be able to join us here in just a moment. Uh, while we're waiting on him to to get here, uh, let's take a look real quick if you haven't yet. Uh, check out our friend Charles Zanders' podcast, the ZIP, Sanders Inspirational Podcast. We're going to take a real quick look at a promo for that, and then we'll be right back. Hopefully, Shane will be here. We can get started talking about Tommy Wildfire Rich. Get ready to get inspired. It's Sanders Inspirational Podcast, the brand new podcast with Upbeat Sanders as he has one-on-one podcast sessions that both inspire and inform Check it out as Xander's has a one-on-one interview with some of your favorite people in and out of the professional wrestling business. Give it a listen on GPTVLive.com. There you see it. Xander's uh, uh, inspirational podcast got a new episode of that coming up uh, that he recorded today. And uh, that the one that he recorded today should be a fun one. Of course, that first episode, if you hadn't checked it out, the one he did with Wicked Nemesis was a great interview. Uh, we could, you know, talked about a lot of uh, fun and interesting topics, but also some pretty deep personal topics. And so, if you haven't checked that one out, make sure you do. And when the new episode drops, uh, you definitely want to check it out because uh, it's an interview with a guy who has a lot of wrestling knowledge and has had a big hand in a lot of guys' careers. And so, he has a he has a lot to offer. And I think that'll be a an interesting interview to check out. So, wait a minute. It looks like he's here. Let's take a look. There he is. Shane Knowles. I think I'm finally here, Gene. Sorry for my delayed arrival. Not a problem, buddy. Not a problem. We were just uh, just showing everybody a quick promo for our buddy Charles Anders' podcast. And so we took a look at that and talked about uh, his first episode with Wicked Nemesis that I hope everybody goes and checks out. But how are you doing tonight?
1: Well, I am well now that I hope my uh, technical difficulties are solved. Um, that may not be done just yet. Piers, you're in a very dark room all of a sudden.
0: Let's see. Hmm. But we can hear you good, so I mean... As long as we can hear you, we can we can move forward for the time being and then hopefully the the picture will come back. Hey, there you are. How about now? All right, that's good. Beautiful. So uh so there for a couple of minutes while I was stalling, I mean talking to everyone. Uh I was I was kind of covering the fact that, you know, we got some good feedback on the Jesse the Body Ventura episode. Glad people liked it and that, you know, this is still kind of a work in progress. We're still kind of feeling our way through how we're gonna do this podcast but uh one thing i kind of reminded everybody is like you know we're not we're not going to follow like this isn't kayfabe commentaries where we're going to follow a hard timeline where we're going to hit every facet of someone's career because like i said tommy rich has been in the business since 1974 and is still uh participating in matches as recently as march i see Uh, so there's no way to in-depthly cover everything. So what we're really looking to do is, you know, hit the high spots of the things that, you know, we kind of have a knowledge of the things we remember and enjoyed and, and kind of have something to offer on. And Hey, sometimes the topic may bring us forward and we may have to go back to cover something else. But if everybody let's kind of uh, go with the flow, and, uh, have fun with it. I think we'll be fine. Like I said, I just hope people aren't upset that we're going to be jumping around a bit. That's just going to be the nature of the show. And, uh, I think it'll be. I think it'll be better that way. I think it'll be a little more fun that way because we don't feel so hard pressed to cover every little thing in order, which sometimes can get tedious, in my opinion. I think we've all Shane Knowles again. This is going to be a tough one, folks. There he is. He's back.
1: There I am. Oh goodness, I'm sorry. Why yeah. right. is not my friend this evening.
0: All right. It happens sometimes, man. It happens to the best of us. So let's, uh, let's try to get into it here. So like I said, you know, Tommy Rich broke into wrestling in 1974. Uh, he was trained by Jerry Jarrett, Tojo Yamamoto, and I think he credits Jerry Lawler uh, for having a hand in his training and uh, Dick Steinborn and a couple other people. Uh, what's, the, what's the earliest memory you have of, of seeing Tommy Rich?
1: Well, Gene, that would actually be in person the first uh, wrestling event I ever attended in my life, 1985 at the VFW Fairgrounds in Carrollton, Georgia, which later became the home for Peach State Wrestling Alliance for a number of years, my own company. So that's why, you know, sometimes I tell people it's kind of surreal to be running events in this venue where so many promoters, so many stars came back in through the day. But yeah, the first time I ever saw Tommy or my memory Early 1985 in the spring, I think it was April, um, on that card, uh, and this would have been a Georgia Championship Wrestling stop right there. Uh, the Fantastics, uh, Bobby Fulton, Tommy Rogers were in action. I still have an autographed 8x10 from nice. them from that particular show. Um, but in the main event that night was Tommy Rich and Johnny Rich versus the Assassins. And this little six-year-old boy will never forget the reaction for Tommy Rich in the main, I and mean, don't get me wrong, they like Johnny Rich too, but I think it was kind of association here, but Tommy was the guy. And I just remember everything, the bleach blonde hair, the charisma, uh, the pointing towards the assassins. And I mean, I'll do some impressions later, I'm sure, but with the, yeah. we gonna get it on tonight, baby doll, right here, in and that place just erupted and uh, uh then started seeing Tommy on TV. We'll get into all that. But that's my first memory it would have been in the spring of 85, personally.
0: I don't think, like, people who are only aware of Tommy, even like the 89-90 range of WCW, then especially on into the Thomas Rich era and and further, uh, and even especially people who only saw him in ECW, um, Mm -hmm. I don't think they can really understand or appreciate the level of babyface that Tommy Rich was in the early eighties, especially in Georgia, but also in Alabama, Tennessee, all throughout the Southeast. Uh, he was, he was beloved and people who are really in the know from that era because of the superstation on TBS, Uh, Tommy Rich is really considered one of the first, uh, nationwide TV wrestling superstars, even before, you know, Hulkamania or any of that caught on. Tommy Rich was one of the first just full on beloved baby faces, especially in the Southeast.
1: And yeah, I want to expound on that for our younger listeners who may not know.
0: I don't, know. I don't know if Shane was only frozen for right. me or if he was frozen for everybody that's there. Right.
1: Um, I was saying when Ted Turner started broadcasting TBS, the Superstation, nationwide, as you alluded to, Tommy Rich was the guy. And there were people – when I would book Tommy Rich later on, and we'll get into that at Peach State, there were people who came that told me in that late 70s, early 80s, that's what got them hooked on professional wrestling was TBS – broadcasting wrestling nationwide and Tommy Rich was the dude. And because of that recognized, uh, in 1981 by pro wrestling illustrated as most popular wrestler of the year. So yeah, that predates Hulkamania, as you were talking about for a, a short window there, Tommy Rich was the babyface in professional wrestling. You can see, yeah, the PWI cover there. He, um,
0: uh, he graced the cover of PWA, PWI quite a few times in his career. Um, uh, that not necessarily been the one you're referencing, but it was the first one I could find as I was scrolling through. Uh, here's a look at very young Tommy Rich uh, with Tojo Yamamoto. Like we mentioned, that was one of the guys who trained him, but he also teamed with Tojo mm-hmm. quite a bit in you know Tennessee throughout the the Memphis territory, uh, as it were. Um, I've seen some like like some really old older stuff from like him and Memphis, him and Lawler in Memphis from like the. Late 70s and early 80s. And he was a lot smaller guy than like when he first started out, he was a lot smaller guy than what we, you know, became used to. And on into the 80s, there we were kind of talking about around 85 and uh, that time frame. But uh, he, I guess we'll kind of jump to it here. I mean, like, say we're going to kind of be all over the place and we may backtrack a little bit. But one of the things that always stood out to me. Uh, once I became aware of him, which was kind of around that same time frame. Like I remember seeing Tommy Rich in 85, 86, but as I mentioned at the end of the last episode, when he, what really stands out of my mind as a kid or stood out in my mind and really locked him into my, into my head was 87 in Memphis, teaming with Austin Idol when they, you know, they posted Jerry Lawler and shaved his head or, Gave him the haircut, whatever you want to, you know, whatever you want to call it, but they always mentioned former NWA World Champion Tommy Rich, and of course, in my lifetime at that point, I really was only familiar with Flair, Harley, Race. Uh, to me, were the NWA World Champions. So to think that you know Tommy Rich had been a former NWA World Champion. Of course, as I get a little older and do a little more research, you, know, you find out <laughs> that it was a four-day title reign. Uh, He won in Augusta, Georgia, and let me see if I can find the date on that right quick. Uh, Augusta, Georgia, April 27, 1981, he defeated Harley Race and became the NWA World Champion. Uh, Four days later in Gainesville, he lost the title back. Uh, There's been a lot of speculation and rumor and different things over the years about that title reign and how it came about and why it came about. Um but I mean, you can't take it, especially in the kayfabe era. It, no matter if it lasted four days or four hours, the man defeated Harley Race to be the NWA World Championship and champion, and I mean that was huge on his resume. And he, I mean, to this day, he still brags about it. And, and why wouldn't you?
1: And that was the belt, Gene, as you uh, spoke of. Same thing: Ric Flair, Harley Race, and then you know Terry Funk being the former champion, the Briscoes. And that's not a very long list when you look at just those five or six guys. How long they held the NWA title until we're going back into Rogers, Luthes, whatnot. But Tommy Rich is forever etched in history uh, when that belt. And, and I don't want to be a detriment to anything that's going on now with those three initials. But when the NWA World Title really, 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 truly meant the world. In professional wrestling, uh, someone thought enough of him. And as you said, speculation, rumor and innuendo of how and why he may have got the belt. But, you know, as we look at it, uh, what, four decades later, it doesn't matter, or almost four decades later, how you got the belt. The fact that you are that champion, that's something to hang your hat on. But speaking of titles, and I know we're jumping all over here, uh, the first Charlotte Fan Fest that I ever attended uh in 2010 i know we've got some tommy stories but this really isn't one about tommy that first year rick martell was there and anybody who knows me knows rick martell's in my personal like top five so it was such an honor to get to meet him and while talking with him he asked me you know was i in the business i said promoted in georgia rick martell's first words were wow he's like had some good times in georgia when i was uh nwa georgia tag team champions with tommy rich and i thought he was kidding i went Huh? And he was like, yeah, I mean, and so like, you know, after shaking his hand, I immediately go, I had a flip phone. So I had to wait to my laptop. So I got in the, uh, this was 2010 in the room and found out mind blown that Tommy Rich and Rick Martell were NWA Georgia tag team champions together. But then also Tommy people that he, he was a seven time NWA Georgia tag team champion with partners such as Rick Martell, Stan Hansen, Tony Atlas, Wahoo McDaniel, the Crusher, and Thunderbolt Patterson. Now, that's a pretty impressive resume to be holding tag straps with.
0: That's a who's who of that era right there. I mean, that's – yeah, I mean, just the thought of a Tommy Rich, Rick Martell tag team in that era. (laughs) I know. You know, ladies – you know, the ladies were crazy for both those guys, so you put them together. I can only imagine the high-pitched screams and and windows shattering (laughs) –
1: and you're right. It had to be the good looking white beat baby faces that the ladies love because yeah, a French Canadian and a guy from Tennessee, I don't know how much they would mesh in you know, their personality wise.
0: Oh yeah. I, <laughs> yeah, I can only imagine the stories he that Martel can, you know, tell just of hanging of the culture shock for him to come down there and go run the roads with, with Tommy Rich for a few months in Georgia. <laughs> <laughs> You know, something else that when people talk about Tommy Rich, inevitably, if, if it's anybody with any, you know, long-term fandom, it's going to come up that he's former NWA world champion. Uh, the other thing that's inevitably going to come up is possibly his most famous feud. And uh, if you're like me, if you're a tape trader, you know, it was the holy grail of tape trading that finally found its way to the WWE Network a few years ago. And, of course, that was his epic feud with Buzz Sawyer, uh, of course, that culminated in that last Battle of Atlanta. One, of the, the first, As far as I know, the first ever steel cage match with a roof on top. Somewhere what we later became known as War Games, except it was just one ring. Uh, but there were pictures and magazines of it when I was a kid. And like I said, there was you know stories over the years that there was tapes out there somewhere. And people would offer them up for trade. And then you would get some 10th generation, some random cage match they did somewhere that wasn't the last Battle of Atlanta. Uh, and then it finally, you know, it came up like, hey, they've got it on WWE Network. And there it was all these years later. But it's crazy um, how much, how highly regarded that feud is and still talked about to this day. And it was a brutal, bloody affair every time they got in the ring. It seemed, same. Of course, and that's something else, Tommy. And that's what I was going to say, too. Besides a world champion, besides the feud with Bud Sawyer. Tommy Rich was known and is known for bleeding a lot.
1: <laughs> As Jeff G. Bailey would say, he got that good effing color every time. It was, and you know, you mentioned the Buzz Sawyer thing. Jim Cornette had spoke, you know, because he kind of gets credit for inventing Hell in a Cell. He said all I did was a modification on the last Battle of Atlanta that Tommy Rich did with Buzz Sawyer. He's like that concept really predates anything that I was thinking. Um, but, man, could you imagine being in the Omni that night? Because I know Buzz Sawyer, there's a lot of detriment towards him about what kind of human being he was and yeah. what he did to people he trained. But as a heel, believability on Buzz Sawyer. Man, when he stepped through those ropes, even as a kid, even now, I like, that guy's not someone to tussle with.
0: No, you go back and watch those tapes and the intensity, you know, his Mid-South stuff and then in, in Georgia and Mid-Atlantic and every, everywhere you saw him. Uh, he just, he had an intensity about him that made you believe like uh, that guy right there is crazy. That dude, he's, he's hurting people. Like they're, they're not having fun in there right now.
1: Um, go ahead, Gene. I'm sorry.
0: Oh, no, I was, I was, uh, I didn't know if you had anything else to add to Buzz Sawyer
1: or that feud or anything. Yeah, that feud. I mean, the, the fact that, what are we looking at? 41, 41 years later. And people still talk about that match. And like you said, that became one of those kind of like Bret Hart versus Tom McGee. You know, I want to see it. I've heard about it. Where's it at? You know, kind of deals. You would only see pictures. And I think in black and white, I don't know if I've ever seen a colored picture of the last battle of Atlanta, but to me, that black and white pictures in the magazines or those still shots, to me, that just added to the allure of that match. And, uh, um, But, you know, Tommy, also a three time. Um, NWA Georgia Heavyweight Champion. Um, certainly, when that was one of the top, you know, I, and I'm not mistaken, uh, I think he'd be Oli Anderson for that belt. But there's another rivalry uh, of and maybe even some into Gene and Lars, but Oli and Tommy Rich. My goodness, but I feel like in that time frame, and we're just jumping here. Tommy had a good feud with Ric Flair uh, on Georgia Championship Wrestling back in the day. But if I had to start naming some of these opponents, the Buzz Sawyer's, the Oli Andersons, the Assassins. And Abdullah the Butcher, which going into two thousand nine, two thousand ten on independent shows, one of them at State Farm Arena, um, they you would have thought it was nineteen eighty four all over again. Tommy Rich bled, Abdullah bled, the referee bled, security bled, and people in attendance—they didn't even know what to think about some of that because if you know, the rest of the show features a lot of high spots and a lot of. Back and forth and whoop doos and here's these two guys making you believe that this is an absolute street fight brawl with color all over the place. i remember seeing some of the faces of younger people like that. they weren't used to that kind of pro oh, yeah. wrestling, but that used to be on a given night, you know, any given night in the south, especially.
0: Uh, yeah, it, it's it's another it, it's a whole another era. A whole, it's it's a completely different presentation of pro wrestling than than what. Even was going like you say, even that time frame, and especially, and especially now, um, man. I mean, it, and this is this is definitely jumping around, but you know, talking about you know Tommy Rich and uh, being known for for you know his bleeding. I'm trying to find the picture. If it sounds like I'm kind of rambling, but uh, here it is, a famous Memphis angle. Uh, you know, he came back to Memphis after one of his stints in Georgia and, uh, Steve Kern and Stan Lane had just left Memphis to go to the AWA and Jerry Jarrett was pretty salty about it. So they put Tommy Rich and Eddie Gilbert together as Fargo's fabulous ones. They were the new fabulous ones. And it went over like a fart in church for the most part in <laughs> Memphis. Uh, people, people, people just did not get on board with new fabulous ones, especially with two guys as established as, as Tommy Rich and Eddie Gilbert were at Memphis. And so eventually uh, the team split up and they kind of went their separate ways. And then they did an angle on uh, Memphis TV one Saturday morning. They had um, a, a wrestling fan convention in town and, and, and a bunch of the fans that were in this club or whatever you call that at the time um, were all in the studio audience. And they had given the tag team of the year award to Tommy Rich and Eddie Gilbert. And so uh, they brought him out and they gave him the award and Eddie ends up attacking Tommy, ramming his head in the ring post, bloody, I mean, I'm sorry, I said that backwards. Tommy rams Eddie's head in the ring post, busts him open because Eddie had trashed him, said he was a terrible tag team partner and he didn't need him, he's a loser. So Tommy snaps. Rams Eddie's head in the ring post just bloodies him up, beats the hell out of him, they go to commercial break. And when they come back, Eddie's out there, you know, with a bandage on his forehead, and he calls Tommy out. He's like, Look, I'm sorry, you were right, you were a great tag team partner. I see the error of my ways now. I just want to apologize. Congratulations. We won this award together. And at the end of it. Eddie runs Tommy's head in the ring post, bust him open. He bleeds because he just happens to be wearing white, of course, as tends to happen sometimes in wrestling. Uh, bust <laughs> Eddie open. He bleeds all over the place. And it was a pretty famous angle in Memphis. And what was fun about it to me, I didn't see it back then when it happened. I saw it when he reused it as Booker of Continental when the Nightmares split up. They, <laughs> they reenacted that, ex- that whole thing. Ken Wayne uh, pissed Danny Davis off, and they did the whole scenario uh back. And then when I was reading about the Tommy Rich and Eddie Gilbert thing later when I started tape trading, I'm like, wait a minute, that sounds familiar. That was a nightmare thing. And then I find out Eddie Gilbert was booking it, so on and so forth. But uh that was uh that was a pretty big angle they ran there for a little while with Rich against Eddie Gilbert and and both those guys, like I say, known for, for bleeding and, and that pre hardcore style of wrestling, you know, what became pretty famous in Memphis and you know Eddie ends up going off and helping create ECW and that bringing that Memphis Tupelo concession stand brawls style wrestling to the Northeast and all that. And then, uh, like you say, Tommy rich continue to do it across the South, I guess to this day, to some degree. Cause I mean, I see pictures every now and again, a lot just in the last few years, like you say, of, you know, him bloodied up and still making it happen
1: over two decades on the independent circuit. Cause I think he left, ECW, maybe late 99, early 2000, right in there. So, yeah. I, now, the last time I spoke with Tommy, and I don't know if this is still valid, he and Tony Atlas were opening a wrestling school in South Carolina together. Uh, Atlas being one of his, you know, longtime associate, former tag team champion in Georgia with him. But that would have been, yeah, last year at the Charlotte Convention. He said he and Tony were looking to open a school in South Carolina. I don't know if that ever came to fruition
0: I don't know if it did or not, because I remember reading some things about it and seeing Tommy promoting it. And I don't really know if it got off. I don't know if COVID might have slowed that down or stopped it altogether or or, or what. But I do remember hearing about that and thinking that was an interesting pairing of of Tommy Rich and and Tony Atlas to be training people. But I mean, they both have quite the careers behind them. Um, You mentioned earlier, uh, first time you saw Tommy Rich, he was teaming with Johnny Rich. So I thought we'd take a moment here. There you yeah, see man. all three of the Rich cousins. You see Tommy, and then on the left you see Johnny Rich, and on the right you see Davy Rich. Uh, of course, uh, Johnny Rich started out in Memphis as Roy Rogers. Uh, David Davy Rich started out in Memphis as David Haskins, which is his his legit name. And uh, both of them were kind of I don't know. I wouldn't say enhancement. I, I Haskins more or less was an enhancement guy. Uh, you know, Johnny Rich as Roy Rogers got used fairly well. Uh, but then when they, they went over to Alabama and became Tommy's cousins, um, they did pretty well over there. Of course, Haskins, you know, did some enhancement stuff for Watts and and UWF, uh, later, both of them ended up in like around 89 doing jobs in WCW. And I think Haskins even did some, I seen him on like some old superstars wrestling from like 86, uh, on there, uh, (laughs) doing some matches. But, uh, Man, you're talking about getting the rub from somebody. I mean, the best thing they ever did was become Tommy Rich's cousins because it, it gave them a career in the South throughout the 80s and into the 90s, and, and they still do conventions appearances and and things like that and team up with Tommy here and there every now and again.
1: You, you spoke earlier um, when WCW around at like late eight or early 89, when um, he came in as like, you know, babyface. I remember he was wearing like the peach-colored, maybe yeah. like the, the the tie-dyed peach. Died, and, yes, And he put on maybe, look, 30, 40 pounds since I had last seen him in Continental maybe two years earlier. And I remember thinking like, Tommy Rich is in these TV matches, and every now and then an announcer would refer to him as a former NWA world champion, kind of like almost in passing, not like really putting over an accolade, but Tommy would be losing to guys that, you know, even as 11 or 12 years old, I'm like, He shouldn't be. I mean, this is a former NWHA. I've seen this guy be, of course, you know, now you understand how the business works, but then I'm just like, what is Tommy Rich doing losing on a Saturday night in the third match in seven minutes, you know, with maybe 90 seconds of offense and then selling the rest of the way and getting beat. But I I haven't told a lot of people this, but that York foundation that was later formed, one of my favorite underrated factions Managed by Alexandra York. Yeah, now we know her as Terry Runnels. But the thing that I loved about this, and of course the, uh, the beef for that, wasn't it? Big Cat, Mr. Hughes was um, the beef of that. But what I love, and you've got that picture up there, those are three guys with three of the most impressive shags of long hair or mullets in the forms of Ricky Morton, Terry Taylor, and Tommy Rich. And we take the old Southern... Good old boy name, and we give the given name that I'm sure is on their uh, birth certificates into Richard Morton, Terrence Taylor, and Thomas Rich, and made them slick their hair backs and pull it in ponytails. And I remember just thinking, like, there were so many people where I lived that just did not like the fact they're like, his name's not Thomas Rich; it's Tommy Rich. That ain't Ricky. That ain't Richard Morton. That's Ricky Morton. That ain't Terrence Taylor. That's Terry Taylor. I don't know what they're doing. And it was just simple stuff, but using the computer with analytics to scout your opponents and with Hughes being the beef on that, I don't know how long that group stayed together. I think it was through like, what, late 92 or early 92? It was only like a year maybe, but I thought it had some good potential there. It
0: it only got pushed very briefly, which, and I think it had legs. And I think if they'd have really invested more time in it, it could have been more than what it was. Because like. Like you say, it was changing the name and slicking their hair back was about as far as they went. Like Ricky still wore like the bandanas around his legs and you know, Tommy still wore most of the same stuff. But um, uh, you know, they, they they started losing pretty quickly. But I thought the whole gimmick around the time frame it was with her using the computer and the probability of them winning and you know, yeah. it's gonna, we're gonna win in this amount of time and I really liked it when it first started. I mean, uh, yeah, I, I think it had a lot don't of spend
1: it. Yeah. Don't spend any extra time in the squared circle and they would have to bail out. She would start typing in on the database for counters. And this is what we scouted on this and that, because, you know, as the world moved into the nineties, like the new information age, I guess that was perfect at the forefront. And they won the uh, six man titles in WCW, I think before they disbanded. But, that was, fun, that was such a fun – that was such a – I remember that is so vivid in my mind as an 11- or 12-year-old on Saturday nights at the York Foundation. And that was our first, you know, introduction into Terry Runnels uh, in that role. Yes,
0: who would become Marlena and then eventually Terry Runnels. Mm-hmm. But something you touched on there I want to back up to real quickly is just that time as a fan, like, you know, you grew, I grew up on, you know, Southern Wrestling and you would see, like you say, Johnny and Davey Rich are the tag team champions in Continental, and Tommy Rich is Continental Champion and Southeastern Champion and Tag Champion and all these different things. And, uh, you know, even guys like Alan Martin would get wins down there, you know.
1: Yes. And then
0: And you're not – I mean, you know eh, – okay, this isn't on the up and up, but you don't have any understanding in – I did anyway – in 88, 89, 90 even, how any of this works or the whys or the hows or any of that – and so, you know, I'm watching Johnny and Davey Ridge, Continental Tag Team Champions, they're beating, you know, they've had matches against Lord Humongous at different times. And now all of a sudden, they show up against the Skyscrapers on a WCW Saturday night and just get destroyed in like right. a minute. And like you say, and then Tommy's out there, and I've seen him not only in Continental, but in Memphis, where you know have every title in the territory at some point, main events for years and years, and he's losing in six minutes to, you know, who you know? P- take your pick of who all he lost to at the time. It was strange though because he had this big run of like you say of not really getting any wins and losing to people that he shouldn't have been losing to. But then all of a sudden he had this really competitive series with Lex Luger for the U.S. title, and where there's even yeah. a couple times like, damn, he might win the U.S. Uh, title against Luger." So that was <laughs> that was odd looking to me too. But it, it that is the kind of things that as a as a wrestling fan really made me question like, why are these guys so tough and continental in Memphis and then they just get destroyed when they go to wcw or wwf and
1: it was in that same time frame 89 90 i remember thinking another guy the iron chic who was the former wwf world champion he's also losing in like four and it didn't look right he's wearing orange neon trunks on the iron chic and he's losing in like four minutes on wcw saturday night and i'm like this was the guy that, you know, beat Bob Backlund. I mean, him and Tommy Rich yes. in that time frame yes. as, as an 11, 12-year-old. So confusing. Like
0: Hulkamania kicked off by beating the Iron Sheik for the WWF title. And now he's in here getting, you know, beat, like you say, in two or three minutes by, name your job. You know, Rap R- Master
1: PNU. <laughs> PNU. Yes. I will never forget that. Yo, baby, yo, beat. Iron Sheik in like three minutes. And he's, I think that match, he was wearing like pink or neon green trunks. And I'm like, did he, did Sheiky lose his laundry somewhere? I mean, it was, did he have to borrow Tom Zink's gear for this? But.
0: And then it all made sense later in one of those, in one of those cornet shoots. I don't know. I think it was one of the timelines he did with Sean Oliver, which were great. Uh, but, you know, he said, you know, they, they let Cheek's contract roll over and they they had to send him home because he couldn't even do jobs worth a damn. (laughs) Exactly. They just paid him to sit home because they got to where he couldn't even do the jobs. I was like, damn. But uh, anyway, that's kind of a sidetrack. But since you you pointed out, I thought that's kind of an interesting thing to address.
1: And during that time frame, I think this match is on YouTube. There is a, of course, we're not probably surprised that Flair gave him this much, but, there's a very competitive Ric Flair Tommy Rich match from WCW Saturday night during that 89, maybe early 90 time frame as Flair's getting ready for seeing at Great American Bash. And forgive me if I fudge on the time a little bit, but it went about 12, 14 minutes and Tommy Rich got a lot. And I went back and watched some of that recently and I was like, you could just see that Flair had worked with this dude almost a decade earlier when he was the top babyface. And he was probably like, I'm not gonna go out there and beat him in two minutes. You know, the so Tommy Rich can get with with.
0: And, again, this is getting kind of sidetracked off Tommy Rich, but this is another topic that I've heard mentioned over the years that people kind of said was a knock on flair. And at the end of this, I may kind of get your opinion on this whole flair's last match, <laughs> the, the way it's come together the last, the last couple of days. But, you know, and I, but I even thought about this as a kid because I remember asking my dad this was like, you take George South, Mike Jackson, guys of that ilk, and by and the time they'd go out there and just get destroyed by Jimmy Garvin, Ronnie Garvin, Shaskawat Lee, take your pick. Mm-hmm. But then Ric Flair, the world heavyweight champion, would go out there and have a competitive four to five minute match with George South, flip in the corner, run up the thing, go, I mean, get tossed, like the whole, all the Flair, you know, high spots. And you'd be thinking, Damn, like, <laughs> how come all these other guys mm-hmm. can just beat George Sound like a drum and then Flair has problems right. with it? But I've had arguments with people in the past, psychology-wise, because I've had younger people throw that in my face. Like, oh, Ric Flair, blah, blah. But I'm like, well, look at it this way. Ric Flair was the heel champion, and people bought tickets and paid money to, on the hope that the babyface was going to win the title.
1: Mm-hmm. If I'm
0: watching TV on a Saturday night and I'm, to, and I'm trying to ponder whether – I'm going to go pay money because they're 40 miles down the road. And he's going to wrestle Lex Luger, and Nikita Koloff. And George South just almost beat him in my mind. I might be more apt to go pay that money. He's like, well, hell, if he almost lost to George South, I'm going to see a title change down here in, in Columbus tonight when he wrestles, you know, Koloff. Do you think that's mm-hmm. kind of the thinking there, or like what? what's your take on that? Do you think that made Flair look weak, or does it put more heat on him and make it more likely to think that any babyface at any time could take that title and you pro- probably should be
1: there? I think he was the master of what the NWA champion was supposed to do, as we've learned later. They were supposed to travel the country, go to all the regional territories, get so close with either the top babyface, usually the top babyface, and make those fans believe, God, he just took the NWA champion to the limit. And If he comes back here again, I know he can take him. And it solidified that guy to their territory as the champion moved on to whether it be St. Louis or Portland or whatnot. So I thought Flair was brilliant in that regard because the old adage, you're only as good as who you beat. And if you go out there and say, I beat a piss ant in a tomato can, well, if you make them look like that and you beat that, then what's the point? So, I mean, even with enhancement talent like Mike, like a Chick Donovan, like uh, you mentioned George, he made George South's career for a lot of people. Uh, that disagreement with Ole where Flair was like, pin me. And George said, in that moment, I thought, no, if I pin him and become the champion, it's not going to be Flair that gets fired. It's going to be me. And he basically kicked out himself. But I think what you're alluding to, yeah, if, if I was older, during that time frame and maybe even during my time young watching it yeah if a guy on tv took him to the limit and it's just george south or it's just mike jackson boy he doesn't have a chance against lex luger and nikita magnum because he's right for the picking so i don't think it's a detriment to that i think you know the old adage flair could work with a broomstick just so giving to the because what you're talking about these guys, George South, Chick Donovan, Mike Jackson, take your – he didn't have to do that. If he wanted to go out there and beat him in 60 seconds, I'm going to lock up with you, arm drag, sh- I'm going to call the whole match, shoot you off the ropes, give you an elbow. You try to get up, I'll clip your leg from behind, I'll work the leg for about 10 seconds, figure four, let's go home. He could have done that. But what would the crowd have done? They would have sat there, ho-hum, we have to hear Rick Braggett. But no, he gave those people those electric moments – where they thought, oh my God, and Gene, what you're talking about, and I'm, I'm going long-winded on this, but some of the footage on that, if you look in the studio audience, not just clapping, not just – some of these people are rabid up and down going nuts at the mere thought that Flair could drop that title on any given moment, even to a guy like a George South.
0: And you got to think about those people that have sat in that studio and watched some of those marathon tapings, and most of those guys, like I say, you had – Ronnie Garvin and the road warriors and Lex Luger and people are going out there just eating folks up and they've just watched all these one-sided. It was almost like just wrestling a, a crash dummy that can stand itself back up (laughs) because I mean, Mm -hmm. it didn't resemble a match. And then all of a sudden here's the world champion in the ring. And, and, oh my God, this guy's getting the better of him. Oh my God, he might win. You know, I, I figured that was probably the most exciting moment of the show. Despite, I mean, even if it wasn't Ric Flair, just the fact that oh, sh- something's happening besides us just watching a, a you know this guy just get killed in here because man, you go, I like going back and watch some old shows, but, and you watch like Ronnie Garvin would just, I mean, just brutalize those guys, take them down and just
1: you know stretch
0: them and just, I mean, just haul off and just just, I mean, it's just brutal to watch now knowing what I know now and going back and watching it, like, I didn't realize when I was a kid, like, how bad roughed up those, and like, the, and the Road Warriors. Like, me well, me and Rosie was watching one, and an animal picked uh, Alan Martin over his head, and just threw him out to the floor. And we had watched that on, like, a Friday night, and just so happened, on Saturday night, we went and did a show in Silicaga, and Alan Martin was on the show. And, uh, so he walked up over to uh, my wife. We had a gimmick table and he walked over looking around and she's like, you're Alan Martin, right? And she's like, he's like, yeah, yeah. Seemed excited. Somebody recognized him because this was just a few years ago. And uh, she's like,
1: we good dude, a- by the way. I like. Oh,
0: him. absolutely. Yeah. We had a blast talking to him, but she was like, we watched a match Friday night where on, t- you know, like the TBS show where he was wrestling road warriors and animal. And before she could finish this, goes threw my ass straight out to the floor. <laughs> <She's> like, <laughs> yep. yeah. He's like, he's like back then he's like it was the kiss of day. if you come in and saw your name on that on that board across from hawk and animal he said it was just like later on when the steiner brothers came along he's like you knew it was going to be a bad night he said it. he was they were great guys he said but he said as far as us the enhancement guys jobbers whatever you want to call us he's like they had no regard for how we landed, where we went. He said they, <laughs> they just threw you, and right. it was brutal. And but it was it was cool. I mean, I'd been around him a couple of times, but it was cool to get to talk to somebody and just kind of hear their perspective on it and go, "Oh, it, it is exactly as it appeared. It, it wasn't, it wasn't yes. misleading. It wasn't like a, some kind of trick. Like, no, they just beat the hell out of us. That's what it was."
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, and, and one more little tidbit uh, on Flair, I guess, before we move back to, t- to talking about. Flair, Mike Jackson told me one time, this may have been six, seven years ago, that Flair didn't often work the Saturday morning TV show. It would always be promos Because if we think about it, how many of those, these alligators down or the girls in the limo. And when I come to insert city here, Philadelphia, Baltimore, blah, 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 blah. We didn't really see Flair wrestle a whole lot. But when he would, you know, it would always be against enhancement talent. And Mike told me, he said, you know how Flair picked who he wanted to wrestle? whoever happened to be in a carload with Mike or with anybody else, these guys were all carpooling together. He would ask guys to come up off their bench or their chair and lock up. And based on the way you locked up, Blair thought I can work with you. And I remember asking Mike, I said, what's that mean? Blair said, if you can lock up, that's half the battle because I can work around you or give you things to do to me. As long as that looks good. And I never thought of it that way. Like if you can do a professional lockup, I can work four or five minutes with you. Yeah,
0: because if you're dead, it's a lockup. I mean, what can you do? From that's pretty genius, actually. So we showed uh, Jesse's first card. Oh sport. my
1: goodness Everybody gracious! Everybody,
0: we do that has one of these. We're gonna we're gonna show them. But yeah, there's the very first Tommy Wildfire Rich wrestling card. Now he went on to have some WCW ones later on. I was
1: about to say I've got these. There's about six action shots of Tommy Rich. Yeah. And and they parts. are
0: they are somewhere in this room in, in a drawer. Uh, I I wish I'd have dug them out. I only had three weeks to do it, but I didn't do it. But uh, that was uh that was fun. And this this isn't really. There's one there of of Tommy Wow of on the cover of the Wrestler, magnificent battle of the Golden Boys right there. That's that's a fun one in there. Let me find another one of these magazine covers we got here. We got. Um, the burning desire is back. And there he is with Flair again. So he should. He not only uh, graced the cover of a lot of magazines, but he shared the cover with Flair on quite a few of these. And and here's you know, as infamous, we're, infamous heel turns there.
1: You know, as Gene is showing us these magazine covers for younger listeners, viewers. Pro Wrestling Illustrated is was the top dog, but yes, Inside Wrestling, the wrestler. These were magazines that were available nationwide at every supermarket, every newsstand. Yes, newsstands kids. And those were <laughs> I mean, newsstands and grocery super. I remember seeing, I remember seeing Tommy Rich's face at Kroger at Ingalls at a and P there's an old grocery store chain for you um, cool. at drug stores. You would see Tommy and a lot of times the hair was matted and sometimes there was blood. And think about that. People were seeing this all across the country. Uh, and I wonder, you know, I wonder during that time how many people's introduction to pro wrestling was uh, maybe through Tommy Rich, either through the Superstation or with uh, wrestling magazine covers with those in-depth articles.
0: A lot, I'm sure. I mean, uh, and I remember those the, the wrestler inside wrestling were like a dollar seventy five, dollar ninety five. Like those were some of my favorites because mm-hmm. I, I mean, I could just scrape up change before I left the house and and get. And man, that's that's something. I mean, I know there's still a couple out there, but when there was no internet, all you could do was just watch wrestling and then go, like you said, to the bookstore, the grocery store, the newsstand, wherever, and find the latest edition of, of PWI inside wrestling. All the different ones. And there was a bunch back then too. Man, I miss those days of the of the, you know, mm-hmm. getting to go and find those magazines and, and and read stuff that, you know, not not like it wasn't like uh dirt sheet type stuff, but you still learn stuff in there you didn't know. I liked going and reading the results in the back of the PWI of all the different, you know, cards from across the country. And, uh I mean, that was... Were you like me?
1: Did you always look forward to the, the PWI Top 500 oh, yes. issue?
0: Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I, I mean, and that was the fun part, too, is, like, where I was at, you know, you got Memphis, you got Continental, you got WWF, and you got NWA, WCW, and then you had AWA and World Class on ESPN. But like only in the magazines could I see about, you know, Portland and Florida and Mid South, Louisiana, and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, I mean, all these wrestlers that I, that I read about growing up that I really didn't get to see until either they made it to one of the territories that I was watching or years later, tape trading. Um, I mean, I, like I said, people. It's great that you can get on the internet at any given time and learn anything you want to know and get all the dirt and all that kind of stuff. But man, it, it was it was that excitement that would rush over me, and be like, hey, they got the new P.W.I. They got the new whatever. And I'd stand there and read it while my mom's buying groceries. You know, <laughs> I mean, it was it was fun. I like, always wanted to mail in. in Tommy Rich's bloody face uh-huh. right there in the middle of Kroger. You know. <laughs>
1: I always wanted to mail in that little voucher to get the red t-shirt with the white lettering pro wrestling illustrated with the logo. I was like, Oh my gosh. Cause I remember it was like four ninety-five shipping and handling. That, that you know, your voucher. I modeling. On the, on mm-hmm. the- and there was like a Frisbee in there too, with PWI on it for some reason. Yep. <laughs> and you know, Tommy Rich, uh, not only won, uh, I think, Most popular wrestler of the year from PWI, but he was rookie of the year in 1978, Uh, most improved just a year later. And again, I cannot stress enough how important those magazines were with Bill After and George Napolitano, their coverage for fans across the country to see these guys being recognized with those. Remember those plaques with the pro wrestling illustrator? They had the awards issues and just how much that hammered that point home for a lot of people.
0: That was before before the 500 came along. That was always my favorite issue of the year was the the uh, year end awards and see who ended up with all the different different awards each year and then squawk because your favorite one wasn't the one that they got robbed, you know.
1: Yeah, <laughs> because, the you runner know, up and big bold. Yes. <laughs>
0: case, yeah. There's a uh, Dusty Rhodes and Tommy Rich not often seen. Wow. Team there. I, that picture stood out to me. I grabbed that one. I'm like, I I can't think of a time that I actually saw them team together. So I thought that was a fun pairing. You mentioned that uh, Georgia tag team title. I think that's actually what oh, they have on right there.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, him and Stan. So could you go back to that look? Um, that one was Stan Hansen. And I promise, folks, this is not any, uh, I'm not salivating at the look here. I'm just telling you how it is. Look at that hair. Look at that face. There is a reason women across the country and even some of his age demographic today, Tommy Rich was their man. I mean, goodness. He probably, I mean, I wasn't around back then at that time, but I'm sure he commanded a room not only with that raspy voice, but the looks. And, you know, that was the thing, too. Tommy Rich was never a body guy. I don't know if I you know, ever saw him in tremendous physical conditioning, but you know, just the way you work that style back then, he could go 25, 30 minutes with somebody if he needed to. And I want to tell a personal story. The second time I ever booked Tommy Rich, speaking of conditioning, and Gene, you're probably going to know exactly what I'm describing here. With the t-shirt that says Wildfire Tommy Rich with the flames, with the sleeves cut off, has the long tights that look like some kind of 90s music video, vortex circles around with the old boots with the flames. And he was scheduled to face Johnny Rage this evening. And I remember he came in. Now, granted, he had already stopped off and had a picture of margaritas at the Mexican restaurant up the road. We were running because he called to ask me when showtime was. He said, I've already had a picture of margaritas, but I can get over it if I need to. And uh, came in. And so I remember Mike Jackson was in the locker room. Mike's not on the internet, so he's not going to listen to this. This It's for you guys. And uh, he was joking with him. He's like, you know, Tommy was like, what are we going to do, me and Johnny, about four or five minutes? And he seemed kind of disgusted about it. And Mike looked up at him, and he was like, yeah, four to five. I figure that's what you want. He's like, if you want me to work, I would go out there and work. And I don't know to this day if he's done it since. He went out there with Johnny Rage and worked 16 to 18 minutes doing a crucifix, doing a jackknife cover a la Ricky Steamboat. I mean, I felt like watching this, and I was the ring announcer that evening, that Tommy Rich was breaking out stuff he might not have done since the (laughs) mid-1980s. And that crowd was kind of slow to it, because Tommy had been around the West Georgia area on Independence for a long time, and you're used to the four- to six-minute match, where he probably doesn't even take a bump, just being honest. But once they got past the 10-minute mark, and really started working. Man, that hair was getting sweaty and matted. I mean, he helped make Johnny Rage to the Pete State people that night because even though Tommy went over eighteen minutes, it felt like such a big throwback uh, in time. And this would have been two thousand and nine. Uh, and like I said, he seemed kind of offended that evening. He's like, "What four minutes?" And it's like, well, "If you want to," work, he's like, "Buddy, I." He started cutting a promo. He's like, "I work. If you want me to work, I'm gonna show you." He went out there and showed us and. I was like, because I've never really seen him do that. I don't know if anybody's seen it since, you know, Tommy <laughs> worked that hard. Like I said, a crucifix, Jack Knight. I mean, he even brought out a drop kick, and he got some air on it. And I'm like, this is bizarre. I was like, I don't, I can't make the excuse that a pitcher of margaritas would do it, because if that were the case, he'd probably yeah. be having five-star classics throughout <laughs> the early 2000s and the late 90s. But <laughs>
0: that's, you know, and that's something that, You know, and you were talking about how over he was with the fans and especially like the ladies in in the 80s and and into the 90s. But, you know, he was a great he was a great heel. And I liked his heel stuff in Memphis. But I always thought that Tommy Rich was probably number two right behind Ricky Morton on baby faces that could sell and really got over with their selling. Now, he could fire fire up, you know, when it was Mm -hmm. time. And fight back, but he really drew people in with that, you know, with the way he sold. And I, I've always said, I think you know Ricky Morton, Tommy Rich, and Ricky Steamboat is probably the top three selling, you know, babyface sellers in in the history of the business. And then really how they they got over and and drew people in because there was people wanting to just come. I mean, can you imagine Ole Anderson in there beating the hell out of. Tommy Rich in 83 in Georgia. Mm-hmm. You know, what kind of heat that got, you know.
1: And Tommy with that look of anguish on his face oh, no. and the deep bellow coming from his lungs of, oh, you know, when somebody made contact and, and bleeding. You know, like you said, shot the, the was <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs>
0: so, so, you know, um, a couple of other things, like a couple of things to touch on here randomly, because we're eventually going to get around here in a moment to, uh, Kind of his second life in wrestling, I like to call it, ECW, kind of recreated yes. him in a, in a in a lot of ways. But before we got there, you know, he had another run in Memphis in the 90s. And so this is kind of a look at that time period. There he is, USWA heavyweight champion, uh, probably around 94, 95 right there. Um, one of my... Favorite things of his is his tag team with Dangerous Doug Gilbert. Uh, you know, they had, I forgot
1: about that till I saw that picture.
0: They had a a big feud with PG 13, Wolfie D, and Jamie Dundee, Mm -hmm. Casey Ice. That is really considered to be the last big Memphis territory feud before the USWA completely died out. Like they drew the last few big houses in Memphis, which even those weren't big by the standards of what Memphis had been. But, you know, Randy Hales and different people who were running the show at the time have credited that feud with being what held Memphis on an extra probably year and a half. Um, And they had some wild – I drove to Memphis back then and saw some of those matches Mm -hmm. and they had some wild matches. And I love this picture right here because there you got got Tommy Ridge, Buddy Landau, a favorite of mine. I've always been a huge fan of the Gilberts, Eddie and Doug. And then you got Brian Mm -hmm. Christopher in there. And it's, wow. it's sad that so many people only know Brian as Grandmaster from Too Cool, and they only know the mm-hmm. WWE guy. Because, man, if you go – and, there and folks, if you're any kind of wrestling fan, there's no excuse anymore to not say – like, there's tons of Memphis on YouTube. I mean, years and years and years worth of TV on YouTube. He was such a great heel in the early part of his career. And this era right here, the, the Memphis Mafia, they called it. Uh, but man, go on there and watch Tommy's stuff. Mm-hmm. Doug, Eddie, Buddy Landell. Uh, we're gonna, de- we're definitely gonna get around to doing a show on Buddy Landell one of these days. Uh, but, but Brian, like, watch Brian Chris. Oh, Morris. absolutely. Uh, early heel work there in Memphis. Every guy in that picture were top top heels in Memphis, and uh, check it out, you'll be glad you did. And around sure. that same time, uh, there was a promotion. And I'll see if you have any knowledge of this. There was a promotion that I've been told came together with some some money mark that I've heard was like a lottery winner or something called the AWF, the American Wrestling Federation. Apparently, Tito Santana had a big hand in guiding this guy along with Sergeant Slaughter. But they had a bunch of guys. It was they did like maybe two TV tapings. There's a DVD set out there somewhere. I used. Was to this have.
1: around New Jersey?
0: Up that way, because you had you had the tag team of Tommy Rich and Greg the Hammer Valentine. Was their tag team champs? Tito was their heavyweight champion. You had Slaughter there. Uh, a ton of other Mister Hughes and Jeff Gaylord. The Freebirds came through. Came like after their WCW run with the short hair, and uh, mm-hmm. it, 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 a bunch of people worked there, but it was weird because they're like rounds, kind of like British wrestling almost. Uh, but like I say, it was just TV taping matches, there's very little excitement. Like it was just like I say, I bought the DVD set, watched it one time, I was like, well, okay, that was an interesting time capsule of like 1994, five, whenever that was, <laughs> but. No need to ever watch it again. Uh, but the tag team of Greg the Hammer Valentine and Tommy Mitch was interesting to me, especially during like that stage of Tommy's career. They 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 look like they should be a tag team at the time. Like it was, it was actually – Yeah, matching um, one hair. Of the, or... One of the highlights – yeah, one of the highlights of that um, set of tapings or whatever you want to call it was them two as a tag team because everything else was pretty much like, yeah, I could have passed on that. But uh, anyway, not to – Go too far. Now, here's a picture that I skipped over earlier. Look at that. Nineteen has got to be
1: a Great American Bash, right?
0: That is it. Great American Bash, 1990. This would have been just a few months before Harley retired and gets the win <laughs> over, mm-hmm. over Tommy. Kind of illustrating your point from earlier.
1: Yeah. Um, and wasn't Tommy... Didn't he do some work as a heel in Smoky Mountain for Cornet.
0: Yes, he was He was there at the tail end of Smoky Mountain. Um, I think he was – he may have been champion when it shut down because I want to say there's some I – have, I, I haven't I have watched them, but there's some videos on YouTube I've been meaning to watch where apparently Corny is like ranting about Tommy doing something with the Smoky Mountain title and Cornette oh, no. had to try to get it back. But I guess Cornette owed him some money or at least Tommy felt like Cornette owed him some money. And I hope it's not a, a rant
1: like the one on Tim Horner.
0: I can only imagine. I, that's You know, that's why I haven't watched it, because I like Tommy Rich, and I like Jim Cornette. I don't really want to hear a bunch of bad any more bad stuff. I right. have like already heard about Tommy already, because mm-hmm. that completely changed my outlook on Tim Horner. I always thought everybody yes. thought Tim Horner was just a great guy, and then, like, whew. and not mm-hmm. saying Cornett says it, I, I no longer think Tim Horner's a good guy, but it was it was eye opening some of the stuff that he had to say about him. That's for sure.
1: That was that was broke down in minute detail about Tim Horner. <laughs>
0: yeah. Yes. Uh, if you if you don't know what we're referring to, uh, just put Jim Cornette Tim Horner on YouTube and search it. There's there's several videos. And while you're there, make sure you check out Tim Horner's music video of him singing Garth Brooks' Shameless from Smoky Mountain <laughs> <laughs> Wrestling <September> Yeah. <1993. laughs>
1: And you talked about his second life in ECW uh, leader of the full-blooded Italians. I mean, Tommy Rich was the big Don, you know, like, uh, I just remember like watching, cause I was watching some ECW at the time. I think that was before it was on TNN when it was like the sunshine network out of Florida. And we got that on our satellite dish. And I remember seeing Tommy with Tracy Smothers and I'm like, What? You know, because even then, now I would have been like around eighteen years old, and I'm like, "What is Tommy Rich from Take Your Pick, Tennessee slash Georgia, doing up there in ECW in Philadelphia as the Big Don with the full blooded Italians?" But it worked.
0: It it did, and actually, the first few times that I got to got to work on any shows like around Corinth, Mississippi, with with Tommy. Um, he was right in the middle of that big Don run. And so he would, he would come down there and he'd be wearing the FBI shirt and all that. And it was mm-hmm. completely lost on the people there. Cause at that point I really hadn't seen much of, it. I seen enough of it to know what it was referencing, but I, you know, I hadn't seen a lot of it. Um, but when I did finally get to see it, I'm trying to download a picture right now. Did you ever see, um, the flag they had, the Italian flag they had with Tommy's face on it.
1: I don't remember his face on it. I remember the flag. I remember the FBI t shirts.
0: Yeah, I was trying to find I that. I love that. If I could get an Italian flag with Tommy Rich's face on it for my wrestling room here, you best believe it would be hanging up. I, I can't. I found one other day and I, I guess it didn't download or something. But anyway. Uh, In the future, I'll have to try to track that down and just throw it into a random episode because it's hilarious because it's the face that that classic Tommy Rich face on an Italian flag is just the oddest thing you'll ever see. But,
1: you know, a couple of why am I doing the Italian when I go to make a point? Um, A couple of things about Tommy that struck me, you know, as we were getting ready to do this. I don't know if there's ever been an action figure on Tommy rich, even though he was in WCW at the time, the Galoob series didn't have him. Even when WWF did the classic series where they expounded upon a lot of people, Tommy, not included. And I, you know, you may be better at this than I, Gene. but is he the only NWA world champion? That's not in the WWE hall of fame. Flair is Harley race, both Briscoes, Terry funk, Lou, thez buddy Rogers. Um, Dory Junior, yeah, Dory Junior, uh, Pat O'Connor, I believe he's in as well. You know, so it's kind of funny because for a lot of you know newer people, like, when there's no action figures, there's no WWE Hall of Fame, you know, accolades for a guy like Tommy. But you know, I think for anyone over the age of 35, what we're talking about, this guy, that's uh, some pretty big stuff. And,
0: and Tommy's one of the only guys that, to my knowledge never set foot in the WWE. He didn't do a job there. He didn't do a one-off at a, you know, a WWF Birmingham house show or anything like that. Like, I don't think they've ever acknowledged his existence in the WWE short of just him being an old WCW footage and ECW footage, obviously, uh, which is bizarre. Like you say, given his history and his you know being a former champion and all that um, makes you wonder what, what, who high up just has something against him that they would just completely box him out like that. And maybe that's not
1: the case. But I would say he's, he's still one of the most popular wrestlers uh, on the independent circuit. Um, he's so good at the gimmick table and on the microphone, and throwing out those words, old school, we're going to do it like back when wrestling was wrestling. And uh, you and I have talked about this and I'm going touch on it some here he's always uh holding court in charlotte north carolina that first weekend in august at the uh, hilton whether it be uh what be, and that I, my dad and i have nicknamed tommy the rover because if you see him that weekend you don't see him somewhere long it's always about four or five minutes he might be outside smoking he might be up at the bar he might be at his table with his vendor. He might be at the hall of fame. He might be grabbing the BLT sandwich from the one convenience shop in that hotel, which I take umbrage with, by the way, food and beverages at a premium there, but, uh, there's always people around Tommy and it's good to see him. Uh, I remember he had the hip replacement surgery on crutches and now he's got the teeth fixed and he's, you know, walking really without the limp that much. But, um, One story, I think I might have told you this in the locker room at a recent show, but it was last year when David Schultz, Dr. D, was doing his Q&A, and the Hall of Heroes ran long. So there was only like 40 of us in that room with David Schultz while the Hall of Heroes is going. Well, they ran long. I think Tommy had to use the restroom. He came in in the Hawaiian shirt, the Bermuda shorts, and the flip-flops, pops in, sees 40 people with Dr. D., and Schultz goes, what are you doing? And Tommy says, oh, uh, I didn't know that she was having class in here. I got class down the hall and I'll come back to your class when my class looks up. And he walks out and it's quiet. And Schultz just does like the double tape to us and goes, motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> Crack me. Tommy has almost that cartoonish ability to pop up sometimes at inopportune times with, I don't know if there's footage of it, but goodness, about three – no, this was probably six years ago. The Roast of Ole Anderson. To hear Tommy Rich roast Ole, (laughs) but then he really spoke from the heart about what Ole did for him when his career. And he spoke from the heart. He got a little bit emotional, but I love that he ended it when he was – he was saying these emotional things, he's like, and I've never been good one at wrapping it up. So, uh, fuck you, Oli, and walked off the stage.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, those things. It's almost like Tommy is able to morph from one place to the other. Because I swear we have passed him talking to somebody, went down the hall and around the corner, and it's like he's there. Like we're like, when did he back get, how did he get? He's everywhere. Like he's all over mm-hmm. the place. But some part of the fun of the, a lot of those that I've gone to is just seeing. Tommy's interactions with people that I just happen to be around for, whether it's other wrestlers or just fans in general is, I mean, he's a funny guy, whether he's, whether he's trying to or, or not, but he's just, he's just entertaining in general.
1: And th- and I, that's another story from last year. I'm getting on the elevator with Bill Eady and Barry Darso. And as the elevator doors are closing, I don't know if my hands are doing this right ever so slowly, Tommy's head appears and goes, Hey, can y'all hold the elevator? As he closes, and Bill Eadie just goes, "Jesus Christ, that's <laughs> so funny." That's why I say he's always popping around like a Looney Tunes character the whole weekend. It's good with people, man. He'll sit there and tell you stories, man. He'll talk.
0: Oh my goodness, yeah i I've, I've got a few Tommy Rich stories from other years. I'll save them for some other time because I don't <laughs> I don't want them to seem like I'm being uh, negative or anything. But I've 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 seen, like I say, I've had some funny interactions, and I've seen some some funny ones. You talk about those conventions. The first one I ever went to was uh, Greg Price's one that he did in Atlanta. I never could ever make out to Charlotte the first few times. I eventually did a few years in a row, but the first one I went to was Atlanta, and I got the opportunity to take this picture with with nice. Tom and Austin Idol, and as I told you, you know, that was one of the big heel feuds in which in that same day shortly after that picture was taken this picture was taken which, oh my goodness all things considered that's a pretty fun one considering what their their feud was back then um, but i i don't know like he he's one of those guys that you know some guys were a pretty good baby face or a really good heel or really good heel you know or back and forth but like i I, like I said, he was great heel in Memphis, but he was one of the best baby faces of all time. I mean, just yeah, he's man. an he's an all around one of the best to ever dude in my opinion. And I, I do think it's it, it's unfair for whatever those reasons are, if there are any, that he's not in the WWE Hall of Fame and hasn't been honored on a, a national, worldwide stage. Like I mean, like that. Because like I say, there's a lot of guys that. You know, never set foot. You know, Bullet Bob. You know, got a mm-hmm. Hall of Fame induction, and you know, a lot of guys have. And I mean, I, I think I think he deserves it if nothing else for his early career. I mean, people might say, well, you know, in ECW, it wasn't like he was in the top tier, or WCW in the later years. You know, like you said, he was used as as kind of enhancement almost. But shoot, I mean, he's done more in the first half of his career than some of the guys are. I mean. I hate to always use this as an example, and maybe it's shitty of me, but like Coco Beware is in the Hall of Fame and Tommy Rich is. How? Mm -hmm. How is that possible? And I'm not knocking Coco Beware or his career, but gosh, I mean, Tommy Rich has certainly done a lot more in his career than Coco Beware ever did or the Bushwhackers or, you know, I mean, like, but anyway, like I said, not trying to be a Brooklyn Brawler. I mean, we could
1: go on down the list there, but yeah. But I mean, and just you talked about what he accomplished in the first portion of his career. I'm thinking of something, too, from about 78 to maybe 99, a 21-year stretch starting, you know, with the NWA down to ECW. He worked with everybody. Anybody that, you know, Salernardo's fond of using this, I'm your favorite wrestler's favorite wrestler. But all of your favorite wrestlers, I bet you Tommy Rich worked with just about every single one of them across the way, because just who we've name-dropped in this conversation and ones that we haven't. Even, I mean, you're talking guys like Lawler and Flair and Piper and Dusty Rose and Arn Anderson, the who's who of pro wrestling. And it wasn't like Tommy was just in these matches. He was treated as an equal, you know, or something to, you know, uh, definitely a threat to these guys. And I think about my dad telling stories about Tommy Rich was big in Carrollton, but man, when the night before at the city auditorium, in Atlanta, Georgia, before the Omni came. And then certainly when the Omni came, Tommy was still big. We get into, you know, the feud with Buzz Sawyer. But City Auditorium and the Omni, I mean, Tommy Ritz was the dude, the man of Atlanta for about three or four years. And, I mean, that's who they came to see. And, um, it's just a, you know, I'm glad we're doing shows like this so that people can hopefully, if they didn't know already, can realize that, you know, that guy that you see that's talking about fired up and maybe looking for a cheeseburger. That guy meant something, man. And he meant a whole hell of a lot to a hell of a lot of people across the nation. Sold a
0: lot of tickets and put a lot of asses in seats. And uh and that's why I've been I've been flooding the Cheap Eat TV YouTube channel here lately for people who are subscribed to it, uh, with a lot of just all over the page pro wrestling stuff. But I've uh I've put quite a bit of Tommy Rich stuff up. I've put it on Facebook. If you're on Facebook, uh under where I share tonight's livecast i put some links to a uh southern championship wrestling wrestling uh tommy rich's blood battles of the south with some great mm-hmm. uh tommy rich matches and then some links to some stuff like uh austin idol and tommy rich against lawler and bam bam bigelow and a texas death match from memphis and uh uh Tag team match, which I kind of stood out to me from uh, WCW around 1990, it was uh, Tommy Rich and Eddie Gilbert against the Midnight Express, Bobby and Stan. Oh which was a fantastic match. Uh, so do yourself a favor if you're not real familiar with Tommy, if you're only familiar with one aspect of his career, uh, go check some of that stuff out on YouTube, and uh, I think you'll I think you'll enjoy it, and I think you'll have a better better understanding of what he has meant to the business as a whole. Besides, maybe just what little bit you've been exposed to. So, I think—is there anything else we need to say to uh, to put a uh, bow on the uh, Tommy Rich
1: episode? Um, not that I can think of. Gene, man, an hour goes fast when you're having yeah, it, fun.
0: It does, and and we went a little over an hour. But I I, I was I figured I was like, and if we get too deep into Tommy Rich, this thing could go too. Um, mm-hmm. but right now, let's announce. Who was going to be the topic of episode number three? Well, it would have been more dramatic if it would have popped up when I the drum roll ended, but there it is Exotic Adrian Street.
1: Ooh, you talk about a character.
0: Yes. um, Man, uh, so, so many wild stories about Adrian Street. I mean, you think of. Uh, a guy, when I mean, you take a look at him, if you're not familiar with Agent Street, you, you think of when this guy came along in the in the 80s, spent the bulk of his career wrestling in the southeast. um And what's crazy is not to get too much into it. I'm sure we will in the show, but like to play the character he was playing or portraying in that era in the south. Yeah. He got a lot of heat, but Adrian was so talented at what he did and so good in the ring, even with people, the way they were mindsets, the way they were in that era still came to love Adrian. And he became a huge baby face despite that, which to me is just, uh, says more than I can say about what a talented wrestler he was. And it was funny is like, you know, People with people in the crowd would see him like, oh, this sissy or whatever. Adrian Street was the toughest guy on just about any card he was ever on. He would take you down, tie you in a knot, or knock you out. Either one. It didn't have to be either or. He could (laughs) he was legitimately a very tough man. And what a story of how he, you know, came from England and trained and got in the wrestling business and eventually developed his character him and his wife, Linda, who was his valet, all that wild gear you've seen, they made every bit of that stuff for themselves and then later made gear for, you know, I think to this day, Linda still makes gear for, for wrestlers and belts. And he girls. does.
1: I see it advertised on Facebook. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So uh, I'm, I'm excited about that episode because again, and there has been some stuff done about Adrian. They did that little documentary on WWE Network, a little short one about him and they've made a movie about him, but, I haven't heard a lot of podcasts about him. And I think maybe the perspective of a couple of guys who, uh, I went—I saw a lot of his stuff in Continental. I saw him on some Memphis shows when I was a kid, um, been around him some on a few shows over the years. So I think we'll have some interesting insight to give on Adrian Street. Uh, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna pull off and announce a date right now uh, because last time I did that, I shot myself in the foot. Uh, But we will just keep an eye on uh, on our on our Facebooks, social media. Uh, We will be announcing that real soon, and uh, you can see it on Cheap Heat TV live. We always announce it on there. This Sunday, episode number 56. I'm not going to be around. I'm going to be out of town this weekend, so the guys are going to have. Whitey Jenkins on as a pre-show for his Outlaw Wrestling Wrestle War show that he's got coming up. Uh, it's going to be that show's going to debut later that night after this podcast. If you haven't watched Whitey Jenkins OWF, I can't even begin to explain what it is. Just give it a chance. Check it out. It's it's funny is all I can say. Uh, so give it a chance because there it is. Coming up this Sunday night at seven thirty PM, episode number seven, Rassel War. It's uh, you have to see it to believe it. It's it's something else. Uh, anything you need to plug, uh, Shane?
1: Uh, you know, useless trivia. I'm doing that tomorrow night. A guest in Alabama, near your neck of the woods, out at Back Forty Brewing Company. Lots of good beer and food on tap. And uh, it is week eight of our ten week summer league as we. Get ready to go into the home stretch here. But, you know, going back, and we don't have a date, but man, episode three, the exotic Adrian Street. What a story for us to do an old school dive and to talk about. Cause uh, I don't know if there's anybody that has a career much like Adrian. Like, I know I said that about Jesse Ventura in the first episode, but polar opposite. Nobody did anything like what Jesse did. I don't think anybody's had a career of what Adrian street has endured. And I don't want to go long on it, but what you were talking about doing that character two words, tolerance and acceptance were not exactly prevalent in the Southeast when he was doing this.
0: No, if, if you're under a certain age, you, you can't even begin to understand, uh, what the mindset was like back then. I mean, it, it took a lot of, a lot of balls to go out and play that character like i said there wasn't anybody out there that was gonna that was gonna take down adrian but we'll get into that more on our next episode and like i said we'll be announcing real soon um when that'll be coming up and if you if you enjoyed tonight's show enjoy the first show with jesse uh, again if you have anyone that you would like to see discussed on the show feel free to send it to me or shane either one or both and we will work it in the rotation um just a little look ahead you know we we, we're going to do episodes like we've been doing about singular uh wrestling stars but we also have some ideas about you know talking about some particular events talking about uh wrestling things from our childhood like the old uh ljn wrestling figures or maybe even you know the uh, The Glue WCW figures, the uh, Mm -hmm. Remco AWA figures, the and uh, the old Coliseum video VHS tapes. I'm a big fan of them. There's can't really kind of sleep over here in the background Mm -hmm.
1: back
0: there. So we got some of those that I could pull out and show. We could talk about. So a lot of fun stuff in the future. Anything that you would like to suggest? You'd like to see more of, less of, whatever. We're open to hearing your comments. We want this to be fun for everybody and enjoy it like we are because I'm having fun doing this. Like I said at the beginning of the last show, it's, uh, it's a way to put my, what most people consider useless wrestling knowledge to some kind of use. And I recently, on two different occasions, was referred to as a wrestling historian recently. So... I think if it gets said one more time, I can probably put it on my resume for what it's worth. Yeah. Though, so. One
1: more moniker for the king of all wrestling movies.
0: Because <laughs> I'm I'm hurting for monikers over here, as you well know. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, Gene, you mentioned Coliseum kind of Home Video. I've had a great time tonight. Thank you guys for listening and watching. And I think I might go pop in bloopers, bleeps, and body slams before I drift off to the dream. Tonight.
0: There you go. Then, uh, <laughs> get get, get, it, get a, a dose of... Lord Alfred Hayes, before you go to sleep. That's always a good way to go. All right, folks, thank you for watching. Uh, we'll have the audio version, we will be out in the next couple days. Please help spread it around and uh, subscribe to the Cheap ETV YouTube channel. Thanks.